fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. It is July the 26th on The Kale Clark Show. Now, 888-914-914. 9149. That's the studio line, 888-914-9149. You can also email the program, Kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com, and follow me on Twitter, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E, and the show account is at Kale Clark Show. Today is a very, very special feast day in the Catholic Church. It's the Feast of St. Joachim and St. Anne the parents of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the grandparents of Jesus. Really what I wanted to highlight, because we, we actually don't know too much about them. There's a, an early document in the church that didn't make it into the Bible. It's an early church document called the Proto-Evangelium of James, or the First Gospel of James. And I talked about that a lot on our Faith Explained series called Bonding with James, which was all about not James the Greater, not not the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, but there, there are a lot of James in the New Testament, and he's one of them. He's the one that's known as the quote-unquote brother of the Lord. Uh, he is not a son of Mary, but I do think he was a relative of Jesus, became the first bishop of Jerusalem, became a martyr. So we did this whole series on him, and I touched on this, this document called the Proto-Evangelium of James. Now, it's not scripture. There might be some genuine historical stuff in there, maybe not. It's hard to tell, but that's one of the places where you can read about St. Joachim and St. Anne, and in the book, uh, Proto-Evangelium, they drop off Mary at the temple when she's a young girl, so there's some stuff in there about them. But we do know something else about them. We know where they lived. Now, as you know, I'm a big basketball fan, big sports fan all around, and my favorite basketball player growing up was the very legendary Larry Bird of the Boston Celtics. Yeah, they even called him Larry Legend. And Larry was from a place called French Lick, Indiana, very small town. And the media, and Larry himself liked to play this up, his small town roots. He was actually called the Hick from French Lick. And he didn't mind. He was just a kid from the sticks who made good. And for centuries and centuries, a lot of preachers in the church have similarly said, they've tried to allege that Jesus also was kind of a country bumpkin in terms of where he was from. Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, where he grew up, he's called Jesus of Nazareth after all. Even though he was born in Bethlehem, he wasn't known as Jesus of Bethlehem. Even though he lived in Capernaum, that was kind of his home base during his ministry. He wasn't known as Jesus of Capernaum. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he grew up. And Usually, in homilies and writings from figures throughout church history, Nazareth was often portrayed as some sort of an isolated backwater. It's far removed from the big cities of the Roman Empire, but that's not really the case. Now, now Nazareth itself was a pretty small village in the time of Jesus. About maybe 200 people, maybe 400 people somewhere in that neighborhood lived there. Not that big. There's been a lot of uh, archaeological excavations that have happened around uh, around Nazareth. And if you go there today, and if you travel on a, on a journey to the Holy Land, maybe I'll get to take you one day. There's about 60,000 people living in Nazareth now. It's, it's, it's pretty bustling at the moment. But these excavations that have gone on there, and there's a lot of really fascinating ones, they've kind of quashed the myth that Jesus kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere. 
One of the most important digs in Israel took place about four miles north of Nazareth, and it's in a place called Sepphoris. Now, Sepphoris was a very big city relative to, to Nazareth, for sure. And again, it's about four miles north. Now, in Hebrew, the name of the city is Zippori, Zippori. But in English, it's called Sepphoris. And Josephus, who's a, a great historian of the times, um, his life was roughly contemporaneous with that of Jesus. He wrote about Jesus. He's not a believer in Jesus. He provides us with one of the historical references, one of the many historical references to the life of Jesus outside of the Bible. He has no axe to grind. Well, I mean, every, every historian has their perspective, and he had one too. Nobody's completely unbiased, but he does talk about Jesus, and he also talks about Sepphoris. Now, Josephus calls this the city called Sepphoris. He called it the ornament of all Galilee. It was a really beautiful city. It was a very important city in the area. And there was a highway. There was a Roman highway that linked a couple other big cities, Caesarea Maritima, uh, Caesars by the Sea, if you will, which was uh, Herod the Great had built this city. It was really impressive. Uh, maybe you've been there. The ruins are, are quite uh, quite solid. They're there still to this day. There was like a hippodrome for sports. It was kind of like a, I don't know, I hear the city of Chicago wants to put a dome on Soldier Field and keep the Bears downtown. Well, it's not happening. They're still moving out to Arlington Heights. But uh, but it was kind of like that. It was the Soldier Field of its day, I guess you could say. Um, it was a hippodrome, all kinds of cool stuff. There's another city called Tiberias that's also in Galilee, not far from Nazareth, not far from Sephora. So a big highway linked Sepphoris, Caesarea Maritima, and Tiberias. It's kind of like the tri-state area, I guess you could say. So that was a that was a big route for commerce, trade, ideas. All of that was not far, just within a short walk from Nazareth. So consider the fact that this place was so close to Jesus. There's an early church tradition that the Blessed Virgin Mary actually came from Sepphoris, of course, married to Joseph, settles in Nazareth, raises baby Jesus. But there's a tradition that she's actually from Sepphoris, and so was her parents. They were from there as well, Joachim and St. Anne. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to love visiting my grandparents, especially in the summertime. We would make these trips to see them. Always loved it. Every kid looks forward to it. I don't think it was any different for Jesus, especially considering how important the family unit is to Israelite culture. So I can imagine there were many, many trips where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph went to Sepphoris to visit Joachim and Anne, the grandparents of Jesus. And I would imagine they were pretty close. He probably learned a lot of lessons from them. Probably like any any kid asked his grandparents about when they grew up. What was it like in the quote-unquote old days? And maybe, maybe their deaths were the first deaths of people that Jesus knew, that he experienced firsthand, that grief. So we can't underestimate uh, the impact that they would have had on him, humanly speaking, growing up. Jesus was part of a family. He was part of a community. And so he knows what that's like. He knows what it's like. And so the other thing about this city, too, is that Joseph and Jesus, people speculate that maybe they actually worked in Sepphoris in this big city close to Nazareth, because Herod Antipas, now when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was broken up into what was called the, the four tetrarchs. 
So it's kind of split up into four. And Herod Antipas, one of his sons, he's the creator of Antipas. I know I'm only kidding. But Herod Antipas, he was one of the guys who was in control and he got this region. And so Herod Antipas from year 4 BC, and by the way, that was around the time when his dad died, Herod the Great, and, and Jesus was probably born around that time, 4 BC. You say, how could Jesus be born before Christ? How could Jesus be born in the BC period? Well, because the monk who made up our calendar kind of got the dates off by a little bit. Now, don't, don't, don't forget, Herod the Great is still alive when Jesus is an infant. He tries to kill him, remember? The slaughter of the innocents. And uh, that happened in the region around Bethlehem. All the boys, two years old and under, he tried, he tried to kill them and did kill them. So Herod has to be alive when Jesus is born. So Herod died in 4 BC. Now, Herod Antipas, from that year, 4 BC, all the way up to AD 39, which takes care of all Jesus' uh, life on earth, he had these big expansion projects going on, these huge building projects going on in Sepphoris. And in fact, the Bible uses this word to describe the occupation of Joseph and Jesus, and it's called tecton. That's the Greek word tecton. Now, sometimes it's translated as carpenter, usually is in English Bibles, and that's why we think of Jesus and Joseph as carpenters. But the word actually means much more than that. It means way more than that. It can refer to a highly skilled laborer who would have been good at working with all kinds of different materials and in fact, they could have worked with stone and wood and, and all kinds of things. And in fact, Joseph and Jesus might have even had some ability in the field of architecture, too. You might even say that they were the equivalent of modern-day engineers. So not too bad. It was, it's a little bit more complex than you think. So there would have been all kinds of building projects going on there now. And in, in the video, if you check out the video on the Relevant Radio website, Mysteries, Miracles, and Mary... You'll see there's some images of Sepphoris that have been unearthed by archaeologists. When you go there today, you'll see these, these beautiful colonnaded streets in the Roman style. And, and these are the kinds of building projects that were going on. So there would have been a lot of work for people like Joseph and Jesus. And being so close to home, it's a good bet that they might have taken up uh, their trades there. So that's really important. And Sepphoris is also important for other reasons as well. I don't know if you remember the Jesus Seminar. This was really big in the 1990s. It was a long time ago, but there were a lot of skeptical scholars, and some of them were New Testament scholars. Some of them studied the Bible for a living and taught it to others, but they were quite skeptical about its contents in certain ways. And one of the members of the Jesus Seminar, who is kind of the co-founder of the seminar, is the ex-Catholic priest John Dominic Crossan. John Dominic Crossan, he used to argue that uh, when Jesus was young, he came under the sway of pagan philosophy, and that's where a lot of the ideas that he had came from, allegedly. Cynics, specifically cynic philosophers. And so uh, he used to teach this, and people used to buy into this, but here's where Sepphoris can kind of help us. He used to say, by the way, John Dominic Crossan used to say these cynic philosophers hung out all the time in the city of Sepphoris. Well, excavations at the city garbage dump. Now, if you can find the city garbage dump when you're doing archaeology, it's a gold mine. <laughs> you say, why would you want to dig through the garbage? Well, because we find out all kinds of things about the populace, what they ate, uh, letters that they would throw away, correspondence, really interesting stuff. And when you dig through the layers of the earth uh, in an excavation, 
you go through what are called strata. Those are the different layers. And it's a little bit like a layer cake, <laughs> to use a food analogy. And so the further down you go through the layers, the further back you go in time, because one era builds upon another. Well, what they found in Sepphoris was only after the year A.D. 70 in the first century. That's the year that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. There was a big revolt that failed. It was called the Great Jewish War between the Romans and some Jewish rebels, and it was from the year 66 to 70 A.D. Well, it didn't work out, and what happened was after 70 A.D., a lot of non-Jewish residents came into the area, and they they did adhere to pagan practices and pagan philosophy. So if you dig down to that layer, 70 A.D. and, and following, there you find things like pig bones, which you know Jews would never eat, you know, not kosher. So you don't find that when you dig through the layers at the time of Jesus. So that's important. And also they found coins that were minted in Sepphoris. Coins are really good to find too in a dig. I remember in Jerusalem working on a dig, I found some, some ancient coins. It was really cool because that helps you date the site because usually a coin has the year or the time period and the, you know, the face of the ruler that's stamped onto it. It's kind of like what Jesus said when he was tested about the coin, right? He's like, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He said, well, whose image is on the coin? <laughs> uh, I guess it's Caesar's. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar then. Give to God what belongs to God. Great answer. But the coins are like that even to this day. And so there were coins that were minted in Sepphoris before the year AD 70, and they don't have the image of the emperor on them. And, and the, the Romans used to say that the emperor was like a living god, whether it's Caesar Augustus or, or Julius Caesar going back to the beginning. They saw them as divine, divine figures. Well, you find these coins after the year AD 70 that have the image of a divine emperor, but not before, not before 70 AD. So when Jesus was out there and operating at that time, it was pretty much 100% Jewish city. It might have been, you know, there might have been some pagans living there, but it was mostly, if not 100%, Jewish. So they also found, by the way, menorahs, the candelabra, the seven-branch candelabra, so sacred to the Jews, and also these ritual bathing pools called mikvaot uh, for Jewish purification rites. We were talking about those the other day because they found them also in um, Magdala, the home of Mary Magdalene. It's her feast day the other day. So there's no way that Jesus would have even met a cynic philosopher at that time when he was growing up his early life in and around Nazareth. So his teaching, just like the area he hailed from, thoroughly Jewish in nature. But Sepphoris is also really important for clarifying this city where Joachim and Anne lived. It's also really important because I think it informed a lot of Jesus' later teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus was a master at pointing out profound lessons from the everyday world. He had a lot of parables about the world of work, about agriculture. I think that Sepphoris was part of that world, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to talk about that a little bit more after the break. It's the feast day of St. Joachim and St. Anne. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. We'll be right back after this. 888 Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. 
Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program. It's the feast day of Saints Joachim and Anne, the parents of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the grandparents of Jesus. going to go to the phones right now. If you want to call in and react to this, you can call in to 888-914-9149. We're going to go to Evie in Merced, California. Hi, Evie. Hi. Oh, my God. I'm so happy to get on. I've been <laughs> wanting to just give a shout-out to you. Um, I tried getting on the two-year anniversary of work starting there. And I oh, yes. Wait. I'm like, you're so... Oh, it was, you're witty, you're fun to listen to. I listen to you all the time. Um, I listen to the radio all the time, anyways, um, when I'm driving especially. So, uh-huh. And I learned so much from your history. It's a plethora of information. I, I, I'm Catholic. I went to Catholic school. And me too. I learned more on the radio from you guys than I did in Catholic school. <laughs> oh, wow. That, that's that is super humbling. Thank you so much for calling in, Evie. Yeah, and in fact, uh, the other day I did celebrate my two-year anniversary here at Relevant Radio. It was uh, July the twentieth in twenty twenty. That's that's when I started with uh, the Faith Explained show and the show, of course, Kale Clark show. And I'm so glad that you've been listening, Evie. And uh, I really appreciate the words of encouragement. And and I did see your name. Yeah, we, we were that particular day. We couldn't get you in, but I remember you did call a couple of days ago. So I wanted to make sure that you you got in today, and and so happy that you're enjoying the programs. I love it. I, the channel, every the speakers are fantastic. You're so funny and witty, and I love it. Your sense of humor is great, and you're so intelligent. And so I just want to give you a shout. I know you got to get other people online, but um, thank you. God bless you and the whole family there. Thanks. We we please pray for us. We we need it. Thank you so much, Evie. We'll pray for you as well. That was Evie calling from Merced, California. Very very kind words. Very humbling. Thank you so much for for listening. Going to go to our good friend Paul in Youngstown, Ohio. Now, hi Paul. Hi Kale. Uh, I had an idea on how you could uh, do a mobile broadcast. Uh, oh really? That That's a good be, idea. Yeah. That would be to get a truck, a box truck, or maybe an old school bus or a van. Okay. And put a sign or banners on both sides, relevant radio, Catholic talk radio. <laughs> and then, uh, for instance, when the Pope is in your province, uh-huh. you go to where everybody's gathering, and he sees you and he says, what's that? Relevant radio, I'm going over there and do an interview right now. <laughs> and then you get an interview with the Pope. Hey. How would that be? I think that'd be great. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. So I've been I'm taking notes as you're talking there. Okay, get a school bus, and I'll have to call Father Rocky and uh, and get him to buy one for me or a cube van of some sort. Yep, I've always wanted to do tour stops for this show. You know, go to some of the cities where we have radio stations and do a live show from there, and people can invite their friends and have a studio audience live. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun. I've always wanted to do a tour stop. For the Kale Clark Show. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. It's a great idea, Paul. And thanks for listening, as always. And you can call in to 888-914-9149's Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. And we were talking before the break about the city where St. Joachim and St. Anne came from, the city of Sepphoris. Big city, about four miles north of Nazareth. And how it helps us to understand some stuff about Jesus' teaching in the gospel. And in fact, when you read uh, the Gospel of Matthew in particular, and the Sermon on the Mount, I think there's a lot of stuff that was inspired by Jesus' experiences in this city. 
For example, in Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, what's interesting is that Sepphoris was built on a hill, and its torchlights, its evening lights, would have been visible to the inhabitants of Nazareth down below, only about four miles away. So Jesus might have even looked out his bedroom window at night and saw the city on a hill, just gorgeous, shimmering in the moonlight. And he would have thought, you know, that that's a great analogy for the future church I'm going to build. I don't know if he would have said that as, a, as an eight-year-old kid or anything like that. But uh, a lot of people think he drew that image from the city of Sepphoris. Also, here's another thing that they found when they excavated the city. They found a splendid public theater in the, in the Greco-Roman style, and it was carved right out of the local bedrock. Now, when you go there now, they kind of built a, sort of a more modern theater sort of around it. They kind of built upon it in the uh, natural amphitheater, and they've got like sort of concrete steps and benches to sit on. But that wasn't part of the original, obviously. You can still see some of the original structure when you go there. Um, in Jesus' day, it probably would have sat about maybe 2,500 people. And a lot of people think, you know, maybe Jesus and Joseph actually worked on the construction of this theater. We'll never know. We'll never know. But maybe Jesus would have walked by while a play was going on. Maybe he would have caught some things happening in the theater. And a lot of people say that that's where his reference to hypocrites came from. Now, he talks about hypocrites all over the place in the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Luke. And the first reference is really in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, and it's all over the place in chapter 6 and 7. But he does it later in the book as well. And when you call somebody a hypocrite today, it's an insult, right? It's not exactly a compliment. In Jesus' day, that word was pretty innocuous. It simply meant a play actor, as one would see in the theater. And so Jesus uses this term. He kind of expropriates it from the theater at Sepphoris, and uses it to excoriate that kind of people-pleasing, insincere piety of some others in his day, some of the scribes, some of the Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees were bad, not all the scribes were bad, but a lot of them were doing it sort of for an audience of humans, like of people. They were praying to be seen by others, as Jesus says. And he warns about that. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Don't practice your piety before people in order to be seen by them. And that term that we translate into English as to be seen is the Greek word theathenai. Theathenai. That sounds an awful lot like theater, isn't it? Well, that's for good reason, because that's where we get the English word theater from. So Jesus says to his followers, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the play actors, because they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. So this could be an allusion to a soliloquy, like think about a Shakespearean play, an actor who stands and performs alone on stage. And that's what they seem like when they're praying. And so Jesus, in contrast, he says, look, don't, don't do that. Don't live for the applause of others. Don't live your faith life to be seen by others, to get a human reward. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. But live your life before God, for God alone. And so the city of Sepphoris, where Joachim and Anne were from, and maybe where the Virgin Mary grew up as well, that, that's a great example of how the Holy Land is the fifth gospel. St. Jerome called it the fifth gospel. He was one of the great scripture scholars in the history of the church. And he called it that because 
the Holy Land helps put the life of Jesus in context. It helps us to understand a lot of his teachings, a lot of his activities, his words, and his deeds better. And, and, and also, when you go to the Holy Land, you see where these things happen. You understand that, wow, the New Testament has what we call verisimilitude. That's a $5 word, verisimilitude. It means it coheres with reality, with truth, the way things actually were. And people, as we know, have used the New Testament to find archaeological sites of interest and historical stuff. And because the New Testament writers were very, very accurate about people, places, things, events, dates, it coheres with reality. And so Archaeological discoveries like those at Sepphoris, the home of Joachim and Anne, sheds a lot of light on that time period and on the life of Christ. Another thing we can say about that is that if you're if you're a grandparent out there or a parent, a lot of you are concerned about children or grandchildren who have wandered away from the faith. Definitely ask Joachim and Anne to intercede for you, because grandparents are very effective. I I, I say this all the time. I know so many people who have come to the faith or back to the faith because of the influence of a grandparent, just the example of a praying grandparent, uh, of someone who really sought to live out the gospel out loud and in front of their family and friends. And, and kids remember that stuff, even when they're not so young anymore. So St. Joachim, St. Anne, pray for us. All right. Uh, let's go to the phones again. Valerie is calling from Visalia, California. Hey, Valerie, how you doing? I am doing really well, and I'm. I just wanted to thank you for your awesome broadcast. Um, my daughter, my twenty-year-old daughter, and I have been listening mainly me for the last couple months to Relevant Radio, and it has really been the tipping point for each of us to make a choice to convert from Mormonism. Oh, wow. And the show or the series on the Mormon church, mm -hmm. really, I've been praying about this for several years, actually. And that, that really, it's just been answering prayers. And um, we've been going to Mass locally. Um, I'm learning how to pray the rosary. We start our RCIA classes in about a month. Oh. And I am just so humbled. It's just, I'm a nurse, and... I have been so much more open and speaking to my patients about faith and God, and it's just, I'm almost 60 years old, and this is, I feel like I'm restarting my spiritual walk. Wow, that, that's incredible. I'm going to ask everybody who's listening right now, Valerie, to pray for you and your daughter as you're coming into the church. Wow, this is uh, this is overwhelming to hear, and it's it's, you never know who's listening out there, and when we do these programs, obviously we can't see our audience, but we know that uh, millions of people are listening. And just to know that uh, what we've said has helped you in your spiritual journey. And I'm sure you probably caught our episodes, as you as you mentioned, on the Faith Explained show about Mormonism. And, and you can check those out. Anybody listening now can check those out on the archives at RelevantRadio.com and also on our show page for the Faith Explained. And hopefully they've been helpful. And and that's part of uh, why we did this. And, and it's it's... It's done just to, to help shed a light on the truth. And, and as I said in that series, I grew up with a lot of Mormon friends. There's a big Mormon temple, oh gosh, just about a mile or two from where I grew up. And, and so I knew a lot of people who were involved with the movement. And very often they didn't have the chance to study these things on their own. And so 
I'm really grateful that uh, that you found the Catholic Church and that you're entering RCIA, and that's that's just overwhelming. And and God's going to use you for sure as an evangelist. And it sounds like He already has as you're you're opening up to other people and and not being afraid to do that. So uh, I think that is just incredible. That's just incredible, Valerie. I'm so glad you called in. Thank you so much, and bless you. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to Relevant Radio. That was Valerie from Visalia, California. That, that's an amazing phone call. Wow, I'm so happy to hear that. You know, yesterday on the show we talked about the joy of being wrong. You know, the the joy of being wrong. Now, how can you be joyful when you're wrong? Well, you're joyful when you've discovered the truth, when maybe you've been disabused of a notion that you've been living under for quite some time, but it just wasn't in accord with reality. We should be thankful when we discover more of the truth and we should never be afraid of the truth we should never be afraid of the truth and because the truth is a person the person of jesus christ and so so many saints throughout history have been faithful to the truth even to their death And i remember saint jose maria said this all the time he said don't be afraid of the truth even if the truth might mean your death people like saint thomas more um Actually, today is also the, the day, the death day of another martyr of the church, a more modern-day martyr, uh, Father Jacques Hamel. Do you remember him, who was killed in that attack in the church in France as he was celebrating Mass? Uh, this aged priest, this very holy priest, and also uh, the feast of one of the Vietnamese martyrs who was killed on this day as well. So, um, yeah, there there is a cost to the truth, for sure, but there's also so many blessings, and I'm just so thankful for the opportunity to be able to share this on the airways with you guys. And, and wow, I, I, I love hearing calls like that. I love hearing calls like that. And it's, it's really amazing how the Holy Spirit uses what we do here at Relevant Radio. Uh, hey, treasure and clay vessels, right? It happens all the time. And so thankful for you, Valerie. And uh, call back anytime and keep us updated on your faith journey. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show, but uh, do call in, 888-914-9149. When we come back, I'm going to be talking about how we need to find friends who are willing to tell us the truth, even when we don't like it. And we have to be those friends for other people. We need more brutal friends, and we need to be brutal friends at times. I'll explain after the break. Be right back. Our sponsor, Charity Mobile, where 5% of your monthly plan price goes to Relevant Radio or another pro-life charity of your choice. New customers can mention Relevant Radio to receive a free phone. More information at CharityMobile.com. Helping you keep your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome back to the program feast day of saints joachim and anne the grandparents of jesus the parents of the virgin mary and you know what we all have to be that friend for someone else we had some great chat about that in the last segment about how we can point people to the truth and we should be happy when we're wrong we're happy when we discover the truth about ourselves and about god and really that's what friendship is for at so many levels and i found a cool article in Comment Magazine, comment.org. It's kind of a journal of faith and public life. And James Mumford wrote an article. I don't know if he's part of the band Mumford and Sons. I don't think so. But James Mumford, <laughs> we, I think we've got some of their music on file, Jim. Maybe we can use that someday. But anyways, uh, James Mumford, not, not from the band, he wrote an essay called Find Brutal Friends. Find Brutal Friends. Is friendship about affirmation and non-judgmentalism 
or challenge in truth telling? That's a very good question. And he starts off by saying that few endeavors in life are as risky as true friendship. If you give your friend the brutal honesty that you think they need, the brutal honesty that you owe them, and you inevitably run the risk of rejection. But in the end, and this is a great line, he says, in the end, only people prepared to lose friends will prove to be good friends. You've got to be willing to lose the friendship in order to tell somebody the truth. That's a tough thing. That's a tough thing to swallow sometimes. And and then he gives us an illustration, um, the movie Emma. <laughs> no, he doesn't actually talk about the movie Emma. I'm getting ahead of myself because I've seen the movie. Well, I'm sure it's been, there have been many incarnations of Emma on film. But I remember seeing the, the one starring Gwyneth Paltrow as Emma. Do you remember that? I think it came out in the 1990s. And I actually took a young lady to the theater to see that film because I was hoping to impress her. Hey, I'll take you to a literary film. Did it work? I don't think so. I enjoyed it, though. I enjoy. I, I haven't read the book, but Jane Austen, of course, wrote the novel in 1815. And James Munford kind of uses this as an example of telling your friend the truth that they need to hear. There, there's this scene in the book, and I think it's in the movie, too, <laughs> where Emma, who's kind of, you know, self-centered, she, she, she organizes this sort of game uh, for some of her friends, and one of her friends is the spinster known as Miss Bates. If you've read the book, you probably know this. She's kind of impoverished. Uh, she's not doing well financially. She's not married. She's a spinster. And according to this game that Emma sets up, everybody playing the game has to say either one thing that's very clever, and you could recite a poem or a line from a book, or two things that are moderately clever, or three things that are very dull indeed. And so Miss Bates, who's kind of insecure, she is intimidated a little bit, and she says, I'm going to choose option number three. three thing, I'm going to say three things very dull indeed. And then Emma could not resist, according to Jane Austen, saying to Miss Bates, ah, ma'am, but there might be a difficulty. Pardon me, but you will be limited as to the number, only three at once. You can only say three dull things at once, okay? Because, you know, usually you say more. And so Miss Bates is obviously really hurt. She's stung by this. And according to Jane Austen, she writes, Miss Bates, deceived by the mock ceremony of her manner, did not immediately catch Emma's meaning, but when it burst on her, it could not anger. So she didn't lash out in anger. She wasn't upset, though a slight blush showed that it could pain her. Ah, well, to be sure. Yes, I, sh I see what she means. And then she turns to Mr. Knightley, and Mr. Knightley's a a mutual friend. She turns to Mr. Knightley and says, I will try to hold my tongue. I must make myself very disagreeable or else she would not have said such a thing to an old friend. Wow. In other words, like I, I must really tick her off. Like, why would she say something like that to me? Uh, it must be my fault. And your heart just breaks for this character, Miss Bates. But uh, according to the book, what happens next is that as Emma's waiting to get into her carriage, and this is back in the days of horse and carriage, of course, Mr. Knightley catches up to her, and, and he makes sure that nobody else is around to hear this conversation, which is, which is kind of good, because basically what he's going to do is he's going to give her a correction. He's going to give her a correction. And what he said was, how could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? And he says, I didn't think it was possible that you could be so insolent, Emma in your wit, 
to a woman of her character, her age, and her situation. It was badly done, he says to her. It was badly done. And my wife, who's a big, uh, she loves literature, she wanted to make sure that I got like the exact quote. So she actually texted me a picture of the page from the book. And uh, so, so I could give another quote from Mr. Knightley here. Here's what he says to Emma also. He says, look, he's correcting her. You shouldn't have done this. And he says, this is not pleasant to you, Emma. And it is very far from pleasant to me. But I must, I will, I will tell you truths while I can satisfied with proving myself your friend by very faithful counsel and trusting that you will sometime or other do me greater justice than you can do now. So, hey, I, I must tell you the truth. I have to do it. That's how I'm going to prove myself to be your friend, by faithful counsel. Now, you might not listen to me right now. <laughs> it's like Hans and Franz, you know, hear me now, listen to me later, believe me sometime next week, you know, but hopefully the, the advice will, will, will sink in. And so he was really, in the book, a very good friend to Emma. And, and she realizes that she's made a terrible mistake. She just feels awful uh, afterwards. And so that's what a true friend does. But in our culture, and, and this is what uh, Mumford explains uh, in, in the article too, and I'll, I'll post a link to it as well in the show notes for this one. He talks about the triumph of the therapeutic, the triumph of the therapeutic. And this is often what passes for friendship in what he calls our therapeutic culture. So if a true friend makes the good of another person their own, our culture often takes it in a different way. They, they sort of take it to mean help your friend pursue his or her own good. In other words, whatever they think is good. I'm only a true friend if I help them do what they've already predetermined they should do. So there are all kinds of self-help writers out there who say, hey, the best friends are people that help you achieve your goals. Well, what happens if you're, you know, you're climbing the ladder, but the ladder is leaning up against the wrong wall? And so we, we've got to be more than that. We've got to be more than that. But but this this attitude is pervasive in the culture. In fact, um, he quotes Psychology Today magazine. Uh, Psychology Today lists non-judgmentalism as a key quality of a real friend. The ability to be non-judgmental. Uh, with, with respect to a friend's choices, regardless of how they differ from our own. Because a true friend would never impose her own agenda. Got to be tolerant, got to be empowering. That's what people think. And so they think, if I were to disagree with my friend, if I were to say, oh, maybe you shouldn't do this, that's being paternalistic. No, 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 you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Well, this is part of the therapeutic culture. So it's kind of this idea that there are no objective standards that we should all be kind of trying to measure up to. Everything is subjective. Relativism reigns. There is no truth. I'm just supposed to affirm you in whatever you've decided is good. Whether or not that conflicts with the actual good, whether there are true values out there that cohere with reality. So that, that's a problem. That's a problem. And, and Mumford says, well, what, what, if you, what do you do if, if one of your friends has defective desires? They desire things, but they're defective. And he, and he talks about his own experience. He says, look, in the past, I was a workaholic. He says he was addicted to work. He says he was obsessed with work. And he spent all his energy, time, and money on his work. And now he looks back on it and says, man, I was totally dysfunctional. But back then, I never took a day off. I never even took a holiday. I even worked on Christmas Day. And I made all kinds of rationalizations and excuses. 
the cause is worthy, the sacrosanct calling, you know. I, but he said, it, no, this was actually an addiction to work, and it was detrimental to my overall purpose and well-being. It was bad for my family. I neglected my children. It was bad for me. I was not living a balanced life. And so that, that's the problem because sometimes our friends want things that are bad for themselves. And they might not know that, but we can see that from outside. We can kind of see if somebody's struggling with certain things like workaholism or, or some sort of an addiction. And that's a problem. There's also defective desires of other kinds as well. Uh, in the novel, The Great Gatsby, and this is something uh, Mumford brings up. Maybe you've seen the movie with Robert Redford, uh, The Great Gatsby. So in the, in the book by F. Scott Fitzgerald, Jay Gatsby has this dream. He sets his heart on this one thing. I'm going to have to read the novel. I don't want to spoil it for you. But uh, Fitzgerald says he paid a high price for living too long with a single dream. Paid a high price for living too long with a single dream. Well, what happens if your friend has a dream and they're just pursuing it at all costs? And you think, maybe this isn't healthy. Maybe this isn't good. So what do we do? Uh, we, we might be accused of being paternalistic if we say, uh, this isn't good. This isn't good. You, you, you're not fully informed here. And so this is something that we need to, uh, to think about as we're trying to help our friends. So he, he talks a little bit about uh, the history of philosophy, and you might have read this yourself, Plato's Symposium, and Plato talks about Socrates. Now, Socrates goes to this big party, and everybody at the party is supposed to uh, give a speech about love. And, and Socrates goes last. So he's like, okay, I've got the last word here. So Socrates says, the highest form of love is procreative. And by the way, he, he doesn't mean anything about human reproduction, babies or anything like that. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about love that wants to reproduce in another person, the love of goodness. Love seeks always what's best for the other person which is virtue. So this idea that you want to be a virtuous person, you want to pursue the good, and you want to try to inculcate that in someone else. You want to help the other person pursue virtue, pursue good, because that's best for them. That is real love, according to Socrates. So at any rate, um, that's a good example. I mean, there's this example where Socrates tries to do this for someone else. And so James Mumford says, we should seek brutal friends friends who refuse to accept us as we are because friends challenge and coax. They don't just help us to realize our pre-established goals. They question whether our goals are the right ones in the first place. So now a lot of people, and another reason, by the way, that people don't want to necessarily do this for other people that's kind of ingrained in the culture. I think a lot of it has to do with just the idea of freedom. In the United States, freedom is a really paramount concern. People are, they, they respect the freedom of others. They don't want anybody to trample on their own freedom. They don't want to coerce anyone and they don't want to be coerced, right? So that's something that's kind of in our minds. We, we don't want to impose on the other because we, we believe in freedom. So we don't want to be like a, a, a state of tyranny, right? Where, where, where citizens tell other people how to live, even though they don't necessarily agree with it. So that, that's, that's something that we've got to kind of fight against too, because if we, if we truly believe 
that the gospel is true, if we truly believe that Christ is God and that what he's teaching us is in accord with reality, it's what's good for us. You know, he created us. All things were created through him, the Bible says. So he's got the owner's manual. He knows how this is supposed to work. But but here's the other thing, too. with The, the good can never be coerced. And, he, and he, in the article, Mumford uses the example of a, a guy who wasn't spending enough time with his family. And maybe he was like that, too, as he was a workaholic in his past. And so imagine if a father just tells his kids that he loves them, but he never actually spends time with them, the currency of attention, he never spends that on them. And then his wife can't stand it anymore. And so she kind of ties him up and forces him to be in the same room as his kids. Well, that's, yeah, you might be seeing your kids all the time if you're tied to the kitchen wall, but that's not right either because that's not freely chosen. That is being imposed from the outside. And the kids are going to figure that out. The kids are going to figure that out. He's not doing this freely and he's not, he doesn't have the good himself. It's being imposed from the outside. So that's true with the, with the faith, too, because the faith can never be imposed. We, we've been talking about that this week as well with respect to evangelism and how the church should be evangelizing. Pope Benedict said it's always proposed, never imposed. And in the same way, we have to choose this for ourselves. Nobody can act virtuously for us on our behalf. We've got to do it. We've got to live it out. And then we can be much credible, much more credible witnesses when we want to share them uh, this goodness with other people. So we we ourselves have received it from God. Uh, we're not lording it over people. Uh, this is a gift that's been given it to us. We're, we're associates. Augustine talked about us being associates in goodness that's outside of, of both of us. You know, you and your friend. God is the source of all goodness. Your friend's good lies with God as well as your own. So any true friendship means bringing the other person to God. That's where they can find the true good. Not not coercively, just pointing them in the right direction. And that, that's a great art form. It's it's difficult to do this. And and he just closes this article. I'll leave you with this. It's it's a great piece, but he again goes back to this case of Emma and Mr. Knightley in, in Jane Austen's story, how he rebukes Emma to her betterment and to the betterment of their friendship. It actually makes them better and deeper friends because he called her on it when she was wrong. And this is what he says. This is what Mumford says. I'm just going to quote him because it's a powerful quote. He says, I know in my own case that I may tell myself the reason I don't confront my friends is because I fear being paternalistic. I fear being interfering. I fear being presumptuous. But usually the real reason, the real reason I don't confront my friends is because my fear of rejection is greater than my concern for their good. Their flourishing is not ultimately as important to me as our friendship, and our friendship is thus not oriented to the good that is beyond us. End of quote. Wow, that is a powerful point. We can't let the friendship itself become an idol. We've got to do what's good for the other person, what's best for the other person. That's what our faith teaches us. It's what Christ did. That's the example of the cross. Well, we're out of time today on the K.O. Clark Show, but we will be back tomorrow. Make sure to share the podcast with a friend wherever you get your podcasts or from relevantradio.com. Jim Shaper produced. Thomas Ettinger took your phone calls today. Stay tuned for Timory and the Family Rosary coming up after that with Father Rocky right here on Relevant Radio. Take it away, Michaela, and have a great, great day, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to my daddy.